I want to welcome you tonight, say we are pleased to see each and every one of you that are here with us tonight. If you are visiting with this congregation, we especially welcome you and invite you back at any opportunity that you have to worship with the congregation here. We're excited to continue this gospel meeting this week, and as you can see up on the screen above me tonight, we're going to look at a story out of the Old Testament that we find between the chapters of 13 and 19 of the book of 2 Samuel. And it's the story of a man named Absalom, and Absalom is a son of King David, and it's a fascinating story over these few chapters. And since we're covering this in one sermon, we're not going to be reading all six chapters. We're going to be hitting the highlights of the story. So I would encourage you at some point when you're at home to go read these chapters in 2 Samuel and kind of get the fullness of the story of what's happening. But I think this is a fascinating story that we can take and learn some things from and apply to our life tonight. In chapter 12 of 2 Samuel verse 7, we find this scripture. It says, And Nathan said to David, Thou art the man. Now, if you remember the story that led up to this statement, you'll remember that David got into some trouble when he looked out off of his rooftop at one point and he saw a woman bathing. This woman's name was Bathsheba. She was married to another man named Uriah. Yet David lusted after her and decided that he must have her. And so he proceeded to commit adultery with her and went through a series of problems leading with him having her husband uh, murdered. And it was a big giant mess that David got into because of his sin. And the prophet Nathan comes and visits David and he tells David this story about two men, one rich man and one poor man. And he says this rich man had plenty of sheep, plenty of herds, everything that he could ever need. And this poor man had one little ewe lamb. And that rich man was having a guest come into town and he needed something to feed his guests. And so instead of taking out of the abundance of his herds, he stole the one little lamb from that poor man and used that to feed his guest. And David was angered by this. And he said, who is this man? That's not right. He needs to be punished. And then Nathan looks him in the eyes and he says this, David, you are that man. You see, David was very blessed. David had many wives at this point already, and yet he looked over at another man's wife and decided that he would sin to obtain her. And so Nathan has called him out here. As a result of this sin of David, the Lord is going to prophesy here through the prophet Samuel that David, or through the prophet Nathan rather, that David is going to face some consequences of his actions. We see in the next few verses, verses 10 through 12 says, Now therefore the sword shall never depart from thine house, because thou hast despised me and hast taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be thy wife. Thus saith the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against thee out of thine own house, and I will take thy wives before thine eyes and give them unto, my, unto thy neighbor, and he shall lie with thy wives in the sight of this son." For thou didst it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the Son. Now there were some serious consequences that David faced for his sin with Bathsheba. One of, this, uh, one of those consequences we're very familiar with is the fact that they lost a child that came out of that union and lost that child as a consequence of sin. But there are some other consequences here that are specifically mentioned. I want us to pay attention to two because they're going to be relevant to the story of Absalom that we're talking about tonight. One is that God would raise up evil out of David's own house that would come against him. The sword would never depart from his house. And then secondly, that this evil person that would come into David's life would lie with David's wives in the sight of all Israel. Okay, so let's remember those two prophecies as we walk through this story. Now here are the major characters of this story and I want to introduce the characters because I think it's easier as we walk through it to kind of remember who these people are. Absalom was the third born son of King David. Absalom had a full-blooded sister named Tamar. Absalom and Tamar were the children of King David by his wife Maacah. All right, they had a half-brother that was older than them named Amnon. 
Amnon was the firstborn son of David, and in this case, at this time, would have been the first in line to receive the throne from his father, okay, if, the, if it were to be passed on uh, by birthright. Amnon would be that guy. So Absalom and Tamar are full-blooded brother and sister, sons of David. Their half-brother Amnon is older than them, the firstborn son of David. And then there's three other main characters that we'll talk about in this story. Joab, who is a friend of David and commander of the king's army. Ahithophel, who is an advisor of David who betrays him. And Hushai, who is an advisor of David who plays the double agent in this story. And so there's a lot of moving pieces, a lot of characters we're going to talk about in this story. But I want you to remember specifically those first three right now. Absalom, Tamar, and Amnon because they're going to feature in this first part of the story. In 2 Samuel chapter 13 and verse 1, it says, It came to pass after this that Absalom, the son of David, had a fair sister whose name was Tamar. And Amnon, the son of David, loved her. Now remember, Absalom and Tamar are full-blooded brother and sister. Amnon, that it mentions loving Tamar, is their older half-brother, the firstborn son of David. Now Amnon, this firstborn son of David, was filled with lust for his younger half-sister Tamar. Now, after revealing his longing to a friend named Jonadab, Jonadab gave him the idea to feign illness and then request that his father, King David, send his half-sister Tamar into his chambers to cook for him and to care for him. So Absalom did, or excuse me, Amnon did this and he feigned illness and he requested that of his father, King David, and King David agreed and David sent his daughter Tamar into Amnon's chambers to care for him. Once Amnon had Tamar in his chambers, he cast everybody else out and proceeded to request that she commit sin with him. She refused and vehemently begged him not to do this wicked, evil thing. And yet Amnon would not listen to her. And he took her and took what he wanted from her. And after his evil deed was done, the scripture says that Amnon hated her and cast her out. After he had gotten the sinful desire of his heart, he was through. Verse 19 said, And Tamar put ashes on her head and rent her garment of diverse colors that was on her and laid her hand on her head and went on crying. Now the garment of diverse colors was a special garment adorning the virgin daughters of King David. And so shamed and violated by Amnon's evil and cruel act, she tore the garment from her body and wept and cried over the attack that had been carried out against her by her older brother. Verse 21 says, But when King David heard of all these things, he was very wroth. Well, of course, he better be very wroth. It's a terrible thing that had happened to his daughter, committed by his own son. And yet that's all we see in Scripture as the consequence of this act as far as King David is concerned. He was very angry. But nothing more is done. Nothing more is said. And Absalom, remember Tamar's full-blooded brother, Absalom spake unto his brother Amnon neither good nor bad, for Absalom hated Amnon because he had forced his sister Tamar. So Absalom, for the next couple of years, is going to carry a burden of, of hate and vengeance in his heart toward his older brother Amnon for the vicious attack that he had carried out against their sister Tamar. In 2 Samuel 13, verses 28 and 29, we find that Absalom figures out how he can carry out his vengeful plan. He gives his, or he decides to hold this feast, and he invites King David and all of King's, King David's sons to join him in this great feast. And remember, we are now two years removed from the attack that, Amon, uh, that Amnon had carried out against Tamar. 
Two years later, Absalom holds this feast, invites them all there. King David declines, but orders his, son to go, his sons to go to the feast. So this includes Amnon, who Absalom has not spoken to in two years since the attack. Verse 28 says, Now Absalom had commanded his servants, saying, Mark ye now when Amnon's heart is merry with wine. And when I say unto you, smite Amnon, then kill him. Fear not, have not I commanded you, be courageous and be valiant. And the servants of Absalom did unto Amnon as Absalom had commanded. Then all the king's sons arose, and every man got him up upon his mule and fled. And so Absalom, two years removed from his sister being attacked by their older brother Amnon, has decided to kill the brother that carried out that attack. And he instructs his servants at the time when, Ab when Amnon is drunk with wine, when he gives the signal, to kill him. And they follow Absalom's orders and they kill Amnon. The rest of the king's sons flee. A servant comes before the king and says that all your sons have been slain. And so David begins to weep and to cry that all of his sons are dead. When a second servant then comes and says, no, all of your sons aren't dead. Just your oldest one, Amnon. Let not my lord suppose that they have slain all the young men, the king's sons, for Amnon only is dead. For by the appointment of Absalom, this hath been determined from the day that he forced his sister Tamar. And I just want us to recognize the motivation here. The motivation for murder that Absalom carried out, that he had in his heart for two years, vengeance, revenge, wanting to get back at his older brother for the attack that he had carried out against his sister. He planned it and then he carried it through. And he murdered his own brother because of the act that Amnon had carried against Tamar. Now Absalom himself flees into exile at this point, afraid, I'm sure, of the consequences of murdering the king's firstborn son, his own brother. 2 Samuel 13, 37 says, But Absalom fled and went to Talmai, the son of Amihud, king of Geshur, and David mourned for his son every day. So Absalom fled and went to Geshur and was there three years. And the soul of King David longed to go forth unto Absalom, for he was comforted concerning Amnon, seeing he was dead. Now let's pay attention to a couple of things here. First of all, Absalom is fleeing and he's fleeing to Geshur. That's the land of his mother, Maacah. So he goes to be with his mother's family away from the king, away from Jerusalem for three years. Now the scripture says David mourned for his son every day. And at first you might think he was mourning for Amnon, his firstborn son that had been killed by Absalom. But no, he he wasn't. In fact, he was comforted that Amnon was dead because he recognized the evil that was in Amnon, but he mourned for Absalom. He mourned the fact that Absalom was in exile for three years and he longed to go forth unto him, but he never did. Recognizing, of course, that Absalom was a vengeful murderer. In 2 Samuel 14, we fast forward three years and Joab David's friend and commander of his armies has seen David for these three years longing after Absalom and wishing that Absalom, his son, could come back home. So chapter 14 says, Now Joab, the son of Zeruiah, perceived that the king's heart or perceived that the king's heart was toward Absalom. And Joab sent to Tekoa and fetched thence a wise woman and said unto her, I pray thee, feign thyself to be a mourner and put on now mourning apparel and anoint not thyself with oil, but be as a woman that had a long time mourned for the dead. And come to the king and speak on this manner unto him. So Joab put the words in her mouth. So Joab, King David's friend and commander, seeing that David for three years was longing to have that relationship back with his son Absalom, despite the vengeful murder that Absalom had carried out against another one of his sons, Joab hires a woman to come in and play the, the part of a grieving mother. And so this woman comes before King David and she tells him this sob story. And she says, I had two sons and one of them rose up in the field and, and killed the other son. 
She said, now there's other members of my family and those around that want justice carried out against the one son that committed the murder. But she said, but I don't want to lose my other son. So please, O king, can you do something to help protect my one son that is still alive? And King David feels compassion for her. And he says, I tell you as the king, they will not harm one hair on the, on the head of your son. He promises to protect her son. And then she flips it around on him and she says, well, if you'll do that for me, why won't you restore your relationship with your own son that is still living, who's been in exile for three years? And essentially the king looks at her and goes, Joab put you up to this, didn't he? And he saw right through the the lie and the deception and he knew Joab was behind it, but he said, fine, Joab, tell Absalom to come home. So Joab arose and went to Geshur and brought Absalom to Jerusalem. And the king said, let him turn to his own house and let him not see my face. So Absalom returned to his own house and saw not the king's face. So David, after these three years of exile, allows Absalom to come back home, but he's still not ready to take him into his home. He's still not ready to see Absalom face to face, perhaps because of the fact that he is a murderer and he recognizes that. And that's probably why he's not gone to him in these last three years. Well, for the next two years, Absalom lives in Jerusalem near his father, but has still never seen his dad. And finally, he's had enough. And he tries to get Joab's attention a couple of times and Joab ignores him. And so Absalom burns Joab's fields until Joab gives him an audience. And Absalom says, go before the king and tell him, I either want a relationship with my father restored or I want him to kill me one way or the other, but tell him to make a choice. And so Joab goes and he relates that to the king. And Joab came to the king and told him when he had called for Absalom, he came to the king and bowed himself on his face to the ground before the king and the king kissed Absalom. And so after this entire saga of what's gone on with Tamar being attacked by Amnon, Absalom Absalom holding vengeance and revenge in his heart for two years, planning an attack, murdering his brother, going into exile for three years, finally David allowing him to come home but not wanting to see him for another two years, Absalom burning the fields of Joab to gain an audience before the king. Finally, after all of these years, David has forgiven Absalom. He has restored his relationship with his son. And I might point out that at this point, Absalom is now heir apparent to the throne of Israel. 2 Samuel 14 verse 25, a little bit about Absalom. It says, but in all Israel there was none to be so much praised as Absalom for his beauty. From the sole of his foot even to the crown of his head there was no blemish in him. Now, How would you like that to be your descriptor? Right? From the top of your head to the bottom of your feet you have no blemishes. I mean this was a beautiful man right? He was man pretty. I mean, this guy was something to look at. And then the scripture continues. It says, when he pulled his head, for it was at every year's end that he pulled it because the hair was very heavy on him. Therefore, he pulled it. He weighed the hair of his head at 200 shekels after the king's weight. Now, Absalom, not only was he a beautiful man, not only was he, you know, uncomparable to anyone else in Israel as far as beauty was concerned, but he also had an amazing head of hair. All right, this guy had hair that weighed every year when he cut it, and that's what pulled it means is cut it, 200 shekels after the king's weight. Now, there's a little bit of disagreement and variance on on what the experts will say that is, but most people agree it's somewhere around five pounds of hair. That is a lot of hair. And so not only is this a beautiful man, but he has got a big head of hair, and probably most likely what they would have done with that hair was they would have done it in a sort of royal wrap 
up on top of his head. And so I want you to imagine Absalom for the rest of our study this evening with that big royal head of five pounds of hair on top of him, all right? And probably what they would have done is they would have sprinkled gold dust and had jewels and all sorts of stuff. And it would have resembled a big giant crown on top of his head. All right, so this is what this man looks like. Very, very good to look upon. But not only was he good to look upon, he was a very charming guy too. He had a way with words. He had a way of charming people and getting them to do the things that he wanted them to do. Now, he also took some very deliberate steps here to make himself appear the heir apparent that he had become after David forgave him. He hired 50 men to march in front of him everywhere that he went to show his royalty and his, and his glamour, right? And so he hired these 50 guys that are marching in front of him every time he goes anywhere. And then 2 Samuel 15 verse 2 says, Absalom rose up early and stood beside the way of the gate. And it was so that when any man had a controversy... Uh, came to the king for judgment. Then Absalom called unto him and said, Of what city art thou? And he said, Thy servant is of one of the tribes of Israel. And Absalom said unto him, See, thy matters are good and right, but there is no man deputed of the king to hear thee. Absalom said, Moreover, O oh, that I were made judge in the land, that every man which hath any suit or cause might come unto me, and I would do him justice. Now I recognize what Absalom is doing here. He's had his relationship with his father restored. This is still the guy that killed his own brother, carried vengeance in his heart for a couple of years, burned the fields of Joab. Okay, his actions have not been stellar up to this point. But David has forgiven him. He's now heir apparent to the throne. He looks the part. He's got his royal, amazing head of hair on top of him. He's got the 50 guys marching in front of him. And every day he begins to park himself in front of King's, King David's palace. And anybody from Israel that was coming to the king to bring a problem, to ask for the king's judgment on that, he would stop them. And he would say, hey, who are you? Where are you from? What's your problem? Let me hear. And then he would, he would tell the sob story about how, oh, if only I were in charge because you have such a worthy cause. You, your, your cause is just. I would give you everything that you want, right? He starts spinning these lies to the people. But guess what? People are gullible sometimes. And it was working. And for four years, Absalom, right under David's nose, began to corrupt his own people against him. And the people began to fall for Absalom's charm and beauty. It says, On this manner did Absalom to all Israel that came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. After four years, he had enough support in the kingdom to do what he had set out to do. And that was to overthrow his father's rule. He's now ready to make a play for David's kingdom. So he lies to his father. And he says, hey, remember back when I was in exile? He said, I actually made a vow to God that when I got back over here, I would go to Hebron and I would worship him. I would make a sacrifice to him. He said, I haven't fulfilled that. I need to go fulfill that. And David said, well, of course, go. Worship. And of course, it was a lie. Absalom went to Hebron and he used that opportunity away from David to send messages out to all of Israel, inviting them to join him in his revolt against his father, King David. And Absalom sent for Ahithophel, 2 Samuel 15 and verse 12, the Gilonite, David's counselor from his city, even from Gilo, while he offered sacrifices. And the conspiracy was strong, for the people increased continually, continually with Absalom. And there came a messenger to David saying, the hearts of the men of Israel are after Absalom. And so David uses this opportunity at Hebron to send those messages out. And one of the people that comes in support of Absalom is David's counselor, who should have been David's counselor, Ahithophel. And he was one of the prominent counselors of the land, and he betrays King David, and he joins Absalom's revolt against David. And then David, of course, gets wind that this has happened, that the kingdom has turned against him, and they are following his son, Absalom. 
2 Samuel 15 and verse 14, David said unto all his servants that were with him at Jerusalem, Arise and let us flee, for we shall not escape from Absalom. Make speed to depart, lest he overtake us suddenly and bring evil upon us, and smite the city with the edge of the sword. Now David decides to take his wives, his children, his servants, and everyone else there except for 10 of his concubines. He takes everybody and he leaves the palace and leaves Jerusalem. Now he leaves these 10 concubines there to protect and take care of the palace. Now what is a concubine? A concubine at that time was a legal wife of the king, though they did not have the social status of wife. So there was a little bit of social difference between an actual wife and a concubine, but both of them were legally bound to the king. And that's going to be important in just a moment. David begins a journey with his children, his wives, and his servants toward the Mount Olivet. And in verse 30 and 31, it says, David went up by the ascent of Mount Olivet and wept as he went up and had his head covered and he went barefoot and all the people that was with him covered every man his head and they went up weeping as they went. And one told David saying, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. And David said, O Lord, I pray thee, turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. Now I want you to notice a couple of things here. Notice the attitude of King David. David has had a lot go on with his kids over the last several years. He's had a daughter that was attacked, a son that was murdered, another son that did the murdering that was exiled for several years that then was restored to a relationship only to spend the next four years turning the kingdom against him and starting a revolution against him. But David is not angry. David is not blaming God or blaming anyone else. You know what David is doing? He's heading up Mount Olivet to worship. And on his way, he's got his head bowed and covered he has taken his shoes off of his feet and he's walking barefoot. And he, those are both signs of humility and shame. And the physical pain that he would have felt walking barefoot up that mountain, he did on purpose to show that he was not worthy, that he had made mistakes, that he had done wrong in this situation. And it's an attitude of humility that David displays. And then as he gets to the top of the mountain, a servant tells him, Ahithophel, remember Ahithophel was that counselor, that had turned against David and supported Absalom. And David learns of this and he prays that God would turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. Now at this same time, another one of David's counselors arrives, a man by the name of Hushai. Now Hushai was loyal to David and would not betray him. And in fact, he showed up here and joined David and wanted to continue the journey with David. But David told him no and asked him to do something for him. Came to pass when Hushai, the archite David's friend, was coming to Absalom, that Hushai said unto Absalom, or I'm sorry, let me back up, because he's now at Absalom. What David has asked Absalom to do is to play, or what David has asked Hushai to do is to play the double agent with Absalom. So Hushai is a loyal counselor to David, but David says, I want you to pretend to betray me, go join Absalom's camp, and then whatever you do, whatever Ahithophel says, you tell Absalom to do the opposite right? You give him the advice that would help us, okay? And send me word about what Absalom is doing. And so Hushai does this. And he goes to Absalom. And Hushai said to Absalom, God save the king. God save the king. And Absalom said to Hushai, is this thy kindness to thy friend? Why wentest thou not with thy friend? And Hushai said unto Absalom, nay, but whom the Lord and this people and all the men of Israel choose, his will I be and with him will I abide. So Hushai plays the part well. He lies to Absalom as if he's going to be loyal to him. And Absalom foolishly accepts Hushai in to his counsel. Then said Absalom to Ahithophel, 
Give counsel among you what we shall do. Absalom's now at a crossroads. David has left with all of his servants and his wives and his children and they're journeying around and Absalom is wanting to take the kingdom. What's the next step? I hit the fell said unto Absalom, go unto thy father's concubines, which he hath left to keep the house, and all Israel shall hear that thou art abhorred of thy father. Then shall the hands of all that are with thee be strong. So they spread Absalom a tent upon the top of the house, and Absalom went in unto his father's concubines in the sight of all Israel. Now I want you to remember the two prophecies we pointed out out of chapter 12 when Nathan was speaking to, to David. And he said there would be evil that would be raised up from your own house. And that evil that's raised up from your own house, he would take your wives in the sight of all Israel. And we're seeing the fulfillment of those. Absalom, the one of his own house that is committing evil against David, has now chosen to commit the same sin against King David's concubines that he was so angry at Amnon for committing against Tamar. And Absalom has now done the exact same thing. Now the reason Ahithophel, Absalom's counselor, wanted Absalom to do this deed because this would create a defining moment that made sure that David and Absalom's relationship would never be restored again. It would never be okay after Absalom did this to David's concubines. And so one way or another, either David or Absalom was going to win this thing, but both of them were not making it out alive. Moreover, Ahithophel said unto Absalom, let me now choose out 12,000 men and I will arise and pursue after David this night. And I will come upon him while he is weary and weak-handed and will make him afraid. And all the people that are with him shall flee and I will smite the king only. And I will bring back all the people unto thee. The man whom thou seekest is as if all returned. So all the people shall be in peace. So remember Ahithophel is the counselor who betrays David and joins Absalom's team. And he says, Absalom, here's what we do. You're going to take your father's concubines and commit sin with them because that's going to make sure that the relationship with David is never restored. And then you're going to give me 12,000 men and I'm going to chase after David right now and I'm going to kill him, but I'm going to bring all the people back to you. I'm just going to assassinate the king. We're going to kill him. All the people are going to become loyal to you. It's going to be your kingdom. It's going to be a great victory. But then Hushai pipes up. Remember, Hushai is the double agent. He's really loyal to David, but he's pretending to be loyal to Absalom. So Hushai says to Absalom, the counsel that Ahithophel has given is not good at this time. For, said Hushai, thou knowest thy father and his men, that they be mighty men, and they be chafed in their minds as a bear robbed of her whelps in the field. And thy father is a man of war and will not lodge with the people. So Hushai, remember, is charged by David to counteract whatever advice Ahithophel is giving Absalom. And so he does that. He says, no, 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 no. Don't send Ahithophel with 12,000 guys right now. Because remember, your dad's a great and mighty warrior, all right? And he's got mighty warriors with him, and you don't want to go unprepared. So here's what Hushai counsels. He says, Therefore I counsel that all Israel be generally gathered unto thee, from Dan even to Beersheba, as the sand that is by the sea for multitude, and that thou go to battle in thine own person. Hushai says, we've got to take some time. We've got to send messages out. We've got to gather the army. Make sure we're prepared because your dad is a really, really tough guy. And so we want to make sure that we win this. And he says, and even better than all that, you need to be the guy to lead them. You and all your glory. And I think what he's doing is he's playing to Absalom's pride, right? Remember, this is the, the beautiful man who's charming and, and great to look at. And Absalom hears this and goes, well, of course, I should be the guy to lead them, right? I mean, I am amazing. And so Absalom agrees with Hushai and decides to go with Hushai's plan. 
When Ahithophel, remember the counselor that had betrayed David, who had told him, hey, let's go right now. When Ahithophel saw that his counsel was not followed, he saddled his ass and arose and got him home to his house, to his city, and put his household in order and hanged himself and died and was buried in the sepulcher of his father. Now, when I first read through this, I thought that's a bit of an overreaction to having your counsel ignored. I mean, you know, better luck next time on winning the battle of counsel. I mean, but Ahithophel was shamed. He had lost his prominent position. He believed that Hushai was now the top guy in Absalom's camp. And so Ahithophel left and he killed himself, perhaps out of guilt and shame for betraying David. Don't know the motivation there. And so then we're going to get to this great battle. They've spent time preparing. But while Absalom was preparing, so was David. And they're going to meet in a great and glorious battle. In 2 Samuel chapter 18, says David numbered the people that were with him and set captains of thousands and captains of hundreds over them. And the king commanded Joab and Abishai and Atai, saying, deal gently for my sake with the young, men, young man, even with Absalom. And all the people heard when the king gave all the captains charge concerning Absalom. Now David has gathered his army. He separated them into three companies. And these three guys, Joab, Abishai, and Atai, are put over as the captains of these three companies of men. But then he takes these three leaders aside and he says, when it comes to Absalom, don't kill him. Be gentle with him. Save the boy's life. Now after all of this that Absalom has done, after all of the pain that he's caused, David is still, is still wanting to see Absalom restored alive. Now his uh, commanders, as we're going to see, did not necessarily like that request. But notice it says, all the people heard the king give that charge. And they all knew that David wanted Absalom alive. 2 Samuel 18, 6 and 7 says, So the people went out in the field against Israel, and the battle was in the wood of Ephraim, where the people of Israel were slain before the servants of David. And there was a great slaughter that day of 20,000 men. Now what was supposed to be a great and glorious battle turned into a great and glorious slaughter. David and his commanders, who were very experienced in battle, were able to easily overtake the larger army that Absalom had gotten together. And they slew 20,000 of Absalom's men and won the battle in glorious fashion. But what about Absalom? Remember, he was leading this battle. Now, another side note is that David wanted to lead his troops and Joab wouldn't let him. Said, uh-uh, you're staying back there and we've got this. But Absalom led his men and Absalom met the servants of David. And Absalom rode upon a mule and the mule went under the thick boughs of a great oak and his head caught hold of, a hold of the oak. And he was taken up between the heaven and the earth. And the mule that was under him went away. And a certain man saw it and told Joab and said, Behold, I saw Absalom hanged in an oak. Now I want you to picture this for a second. Absalom has led his men into battle and he's on this mule. And remember, we're picturing Absalom in our mind with that great and glorious head of hair, right? And as he's running away from the battle because it's a great and glorious slaughter and his, his dad is... is is beating him handily. And as he's running away on this mule, he goes under this tree and that great and glorious head of hair gets caught in the tree. And suddenly the mule keeps going and he's hanging in midair by his head. And he's just hanging there. And a servant of Joab sees him. He goes, hey, that's Absalom. He's hanging in a tree and he's alive. 
And so he goes to Joab and he says, Absalom's over there in a tree. So what does Joab do? Then said Joab, I may not tarry thus with thee. And he took three darts in his hand and thrust them through the heart of Absalom while he was yet alive in the midst of the oak. And ten young men that bare Joab's armor compassed about and smote Absalom and slew him. Joab decided, we're not bringing the boy home alive. This ends today. And he killed Absalom. And of course, Absalom got what was coming to him based on the decisions that he had made to rebel against his father. Now a servant went and told the king that his son was dead. And the king was much moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he went, thus he said, O oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom. Would God I had died for thee, O oh, Absalom, my son, my son. Now this is a problem. Because David's people had just fought a great battle and slaughtered their enemy, winning the kingdom back for their king. And all David seems to care about is the fact that his son, his rebellious, murderous son, has died. And Joab comes before him and he's going to speak some truth to the king. Joab came into the house of the king and said, Thou hast shamed this day the faces of all thy servants, which this day have saved thy life and the lives of thy sons and of thy daughters and the lives of thy wives, and the lives of thy concubines, in that thou lovest thine enemies, and hatest thou thy friends. For thou hast declared this day that thou regardest neither princes nor servants. For this day I perceived that if Absalom had lived, and all we had died this day, then it had pleased thee well. Joab said, look, this isn't okay. You're crying about the fact that Absalom is dead. It seems a whole lot like you would have rather them win, and Absalom be alive, and all of us be dead. All of us who just fought for you. Now therefore arise, go forth and speak comfortably unto thy servants. For I swear by the Lord, if thou go not forth, there will not tarry one with thee this night. And that will be worse unto thee than all the evil that befell thee from thy youth until now. He said, if you don't get up and stop crying and whining about the fact that your murderous son has been killed in battle in a revolution that he started. If you don't quit whining about that, we're leaving. We're done. You're not going to have any supporters here with you by tomorrow morning. And so the king arose and sat in the gate, and they told unto all the people, saying, Behold, the king doth sit in the gate. And all the people came before the king, for Israel had fled every man to his tent. And so thankfully, David listened to the counsel of Joab. He went out before the people. He sat at the gate. And you would infer from this that he thanked them for them fighting and winning his kingdom back. And all the people worshipped the king and bowed down to him. And David's kingdom was restored to him. I want to talk about a few lessons this evening before we close. Some lessons that I think we can learn from this, I hope uh, to you, but to me, very interesting story in 2 Samuel. First thing that I want us to take from this is that consequences of sin, right? Sin has consequences. When we choose to go against the will of God and we choose to sin, there will be consequences in that. I want you to think about David. David's consequences of his sin with Bathsheba involved losing a child, Losing his oldest son, his other son, starting a revolt against him, and then him being killed in battle, and many other things because of the sin that David chose. Amnon's sin against Tamar. Amnon eventually got his. He was murdered by Absalom, Tamar's brother, because of the sin that he had committed. And Absalom himself, his sin of not only murdering his brother, but then rebelling against his father, eventually he got what was coming to him as well. 
And I just want us to recognize that whether it is in this life or the next, sin will have consequences. And when we choose to live a lifestyle that is contrary to the will and the word of God, we need to at least recognize if we're going to choose that out of our free will, just know that there are consequences to that. And many of them we will see in this life as it relates to our family, as it relates to the chaos with which we can live, and ultimately and most importantly, there will be eternal ramifications, eternal consequences that we will face. But not only do your sins have consequences, I think that we can learn from this story that the sins of other people have consequences as well. And I think about poor Tamar in this story. She did nothing to provoke the attack upon her. She begged and pleaded that Amnon would not hurt her in that way, and yet he did. And I think one sad lesson that we can take from this is to recognize and understand that there are things that other people will do sometimes that we cannot control. And it might hurt, and it might be painful, and it might cause us a lot of stress and a lot of grief in our life. But at the end of the story, it is their evil intent. It is their actions that is the cause of that. It is nothing that Tamar did. And when we find ourselves in a situation where we have been hurt or been caused pain by someone that should have been looking out for us, this was her older brother after all, especially when it comes to those that should have been protecting us, should have been looking out for us, we need to recognize that it is not our fault. And it is the evil that is within them. And their choices that has caused that. But unfortunately, we recognize that that's a part of life. I think we can learn from this story that revenge will turn you into the very thing that you hate. I think it is very, very sad and ironic that Absalom was so angry at his brother Amnon for the attack that he had carried out against Tamar. And yet later in the story, Absalom does the exact same thing to his father's concubines. He turned into the very thing that he hated in his older brother. You know, that's what revenge will do to you. When we allow revenge into our heart, when we allow a desire to get even, to be a part of who we are, we will turn into the evil one. We will turn into the one that we hate. When we begin to live a life that says, I'm going to try to get that person back because they hurt me and so therefore I want to hurt them, we are not fixing a problem. We're not solving a problem. We're creating more. Not only in this life, but in the next. Absalom, it certainly did not serve him well to turn into his older brother and commit the same sin that he had. I think we can learn some things about relationships in this story. I think we need to be careful who we put our faith in. There was a lot of misplaced faith in this story. David misplaced his faith in Absalom. He ignored over and over the signs of who Absalom really was. And for four years allowed his son right under his nose to turn the country against him. And didn't do a thing about it. Put his faith in the wrong person and it came back to bite him. Amnon did the same thing. You know, Amnon had carried out that vicious attack against Tamar. Had lasted two years without seeing any consequence. And he went to the feast of his brother, Absalom. Without a care in the world and got drunk there. Not recognizing the fact that his brother had carried hatred for those two years. And his life was about to be ended. And Absalom misplaced his faith as well. He trusted in the double agent Hushai, who actually led him astray and allowed David to win that glorious victory in battle. And I just want us to remember in our lives that we need to be careful about who we put our faith in. Make sure that we're putting our faith in those people that are godly, that have showed a long-standing example of good moral character. Make sure that we're placing our faith, first of all, in God, but second of all, as we put trust and faith into people, 
Make sure that we're putting it in the right people. Make sure we're not putting our faith in people who will let us down, who will turn against God and encourage us to do the same. But make sure that we're putting our trust and our faith in those that share our faith. I think we can learn that a real friend speaks truth no matter what. Now, Joab and David are going to have their problems later on and later on in their life. But in this story, Joab spoke truth before his friend. And he came before the king and spoke very boldly. And he said, look, we just fought and many people died for you. And we won your kingdom back for you. You better stop whining about Absalom and get out here and thank your troops. You know, a true friend will speak the truth to you even when it's hard, even when it's tough. And that'll be an indication to you that they really do care about you. Now, we're not talking about someone that is abusing that, that privilege. But someone who really does love you and care about you will be willing to say the hard things you need to hear. They'll be willing to hold you accountable to what you know is right. And accountability is something that all of us need desperately in our life. Because all of us are trying to make it to heaven. All of us are trying to be good, godly Christian people. And we have people among us that can help hold us accountable to the standard that we have committed to live in our life. And we need to be willing to listen. When a good friend comes to us and says, look, I'm concerned about this. I've been seeing this from you lately. I just want to share that I'm worried about it. Or, hey, when I saw you do this, you know, that's not really a great thing to do. That's not really right. We need to talk about that. Listen, be humble enough to listen to the true friend that speaks truth to you. And then be that friend for others. Don't sugarcoat or gloss over sinful activities from someone that you know is, is supposed to be committed to Christ. But hold them accountable to that and be willing to speak truth to your friend. I think we can learn in relationships that our actions as parents have a huge impact on our children. I want you to think about David's two sons, Amnon and Absalom. Now, I don't think David ever sat his boys down and said, Sons, whenever you want something, whenever you're lusting after something, just go get it. It's great. You'll be fine. God will be pleased with that. I don't think David ever sat down and told him that. But you know what David did? He showed him that. David looked over across on another rooftop and saw a woman that wasn't his to have and said, I want that. And he took it. And his son saw that. And they lived with that example. And so is it is any wonder that Amnon saw a woman, Tamar, that he wanted and said, I'm going to take it. Is it any wonder that Absalom looked at the kingdom that he wanted and said, I'm going to take it. Or the concubines of David and said, sure, I'll take them. Our kids see the choices that we make. And as Christian people, if we're trying to raise good, godly Christian kids, we will destroy our own credibility with our own selfish and sinful decisions. We cannot expect to teach our kids with our words what is right and then show them something different with our, with our, with our actions. Because they will see through it. And they will likely end up doing some of the same things. And that's exactly what David's sons ended up doing after seeing his mistakes. I think we can learn that protecting others from the consequences of their own actions will actually hurt them. Now this is one of the failures, I believe, of King David. When Amnon committed that attack against Tamar, there should have been consequences. Amnon should have been punished. Whether that was put to death or shamed or put in prison or whatever it was, there should have been consequences. But all the scripture says is David was wroth. He was mad about it. But that's it. No other consequences that we know of. And Amnon went on living his life of fun and drinking 
until two years later when Absalom killed him. Absalom did that as well. Absalom was protected from his consequences. He murdered his brother. He stole the kingdom out from under his father. And never once was there a real consequence of that. Oh sure, David didn't run immediately and pull him out of exile. He let him stay in the land of his mother for three years. And sure, he kind of refused to see him face to face for a couple of years once he got back. But time and time again, David showed a weakness toward his children. Not accepting the true character of who they were based on their actions, but instead seeing what he wanted to see, even to the point of Absalom's death. After all that he had done, David was still concerned more about the life of his son than he was about the kingdom that he was in charge of. And too many times as parents, we fall into the trap of believing that our kids can do no wrong. And I want to tell you, your kids and my kids, they can do wrong. And we don't need to jump immediately to the assumption and conclusion that it's everybody else's fault and my kid is perfect and it couldn't be them. We need to recognize that all of us are humans. Our kids are human beings and they're going to make mistakes and they're going to do things wrong. And it's our job and responsibility as a parent to parent them, to discipline them, to show them what is right and what is wrong and not protect them from the consequences of their own actions because real life is that there are consequences to our actions. And if we raise our children to believe that there are no consequences for any action that they undertake, then why would we be surprised that they live a chaotic life following after whatever intrigues them when they become adults? Why are we so saddened and surprised that they're not members of the church later on in life when we raise them to believe they can do whatever they want to do and there's no consequences of it? It is our job and responsibility as parents today to teach them the real life principle of consequences. And when we do that, maybe our children won't face some of the same decisions and actions that Amnon and Absalom did. I think we can learn some things about humility from this story. I think we can learn that outward beauty and charm needs to be used to bring glory to God and not ourselves. Absalom was a very, very pretty man and very charming and people loved him. And he used that for all the wrong things. You know, there are some of you in this crowd that may look in the mirror and think, head to toe, no blemishes. Nobody can be compared to this beauty. Probably not. I I don't believe that you're that prideful or arrogant. But if you do consider yourself man pretty, or you do consider yourself beautiful tonight, make sure that that's not the focus of your life. Because that's not important. You know, time will fade a lot of those good looks. If Absalom had lived long enough, I'm sure it would have even faded his. And eventually all of us will face death. And these bodies will be no more. And so why do we put such stock and such pride in our physical appearance and physical bodies when they are much less important than the spiritual outlook of our life? And so let's use that beauty and that charm. If you've been gifted physically in that way, see that as a blessing from God and use it to glorify God. If you're a charming person, if, if you have a way of really, really captivating people and people love you and they love to talk to you, use that to bring them to Christ. Use that to teach them good things. Don't use it to glorify yourself. Use it to glorify God. I think we can learn about humility that that which we pride ourselves in the most may very well be our own downfall. I love the fact that this guy who had that such a glorious head of hair, that five pounds of hair wrapped up in a uh, crown-like adornment there with jewels and gold dust and all that stuff probably on top of it, that that is the very thing that got him caught in the tree and led to his demise. 
You know, many times when we put stock in our own physical abilities or looks or those things um, that God has blessed us with, but when we lift ourselves up with pride about those things, we'll be brought low. Those are the very things oftentimes that will bring us destruction. And the proverb that talks about a haughty spirit bringing us to a fall is no more true than we can see with the example of Absalom in this story. I think we can learn that acknowledging, confessing, and repenting of sin will always be better for you in the end. And I want to key in on David here for just a moment. David made a lot of mistakes. Made a lot of mistakes with the kids. Made a lot of mistakes in his personal life with Bathsheba. A lot of mistakes as far as being a king of a kingdom and not appreciating the people that had served him and fought for him and all those things. But what David did have was humility and repentance. He was willing to see himself as a person who makes mistakes. He was willing to look in the mirror and recognize that he was not a perfect person. And when he climbed that walk towards Mount Olivet to worship the Lord as the worst thing imaginable was happening and his kingdom was being taken from him, he showed humility and he showed an attitude of confession and repentance toward the Lord. And you know who came out of this story still with his kingdom intact? David. David, with all of his faults, with all of his mistakes, and with all of his sin, he was the one that still ended this story in favor with God and man because of his attitude. You're going to make mistakes in your life. I'm going to make mistakes in my life. If we gloss over them and pretend that they don't exist, it'll be our downfall. If we look ourselves in the mirror and acknowledge that we're not perfect, that we've sinned, that we've made mistakes and we're willing to confess those things before God and perhaps confess those things to each other as James talks about, if we're willing to do that and have a repentant heart and a spirit of humility, God will bless us. We can be forgiven of those wrongs, of those sins that we have committed. God will forgive us. We can move forward with peace in our life, walking towards that home in heaven that God has promised to us. God did not create heaven for perfect people. He created heaven for flawed people who have given themselves over to the only perfect one that's ever walked this earth. And that's Jesus Christ. And in order to live that out, we have to have an attitude of humility and be willing to confess and repent of those things that we've done wrong. James chapter 1 and verse 12 says, Blessed is the man that endureth temptation. For when he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life, which the Lord hath promised to them that love him. I want to encourage you tonight to be like David in this story. Not like David when he chose to sin with Bathsheba. Not like David in his failures toward his children. But even when we fail and make mistakes like that, be like David in the attitude that he had before God. Be like David in the confession and the repentance that he made before God. And be like David. How that every time David woke up, even when he had failed even when he had wronged someone, or even when the storms of life were chasing him down, he got up and he tried his best to serve the Lord. And I believe that that's why the scripture calls him a man after God's own heart. And you and I can be that too. It's not about being perfect. It's about recognizing and acknowledging that we're not. And trusting in Jesus to be perfect for us. And living a life wholly dedicated and committed to him. If you're here this evening and you've not walked with Christ or started that walk, we offer you the opportunity to be baptized into his name tonight.
Allow his blood to wash over you and cleanse you of your sin tonight. If you're here and you are a member of the church, but perhaps you need to turn your life around. Perhaps you need to make confession. Perhaps you need to repent of things in your life. We invite you as well to come forward and sit on a front pew as we stand and sing.